0: For the week of Thursday, April 12, 2019, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, the response to Como TV's hour-long piece on homelessness called Seattle is Dying has been swift and strong, particularly among the progressive community in the state. We talked with the project director for Seattle University's Project on Family Homelessness, Katherine Heinrichsen, about her response and about the work her organization does, which focuses in part on the power of storytelling to humanize the issue of homelessness. Also, a group of indivisible members and education advocates traveled to Olympia to testify on behalf of a bill that would institute a capital gains tax in Washington, funds from which would be used to fund vital services like education. And then we will wrap things up with our calls to action with research team leader Stephen Wilhelm. That's all ahead, so stay with us. The issue of homelessness has been front and center on a lot of people's minds, perhaps even more than usual these last few weeks, since the broadcast of Como's controversial one-hour-long documentary on homelessness called Seattle is Dying. My guest, Katherine Heinrichsen, is program director for Seattle University's Project on Family Homelessness, and she recently wrote an op-ed that took issue with much of what was presented in the Como piece, and so we have invited her on to get her perspective. Uh, I should also mention that, since we've talked a fair bit about the upcoming CrossCut Festival on the show that she will be moderating a panel called Boomtowns Affordability and Access for Communities on the Margins at the Crosscut Festival. But Catherine Heinrichson, thank you so much for joining us.
1: You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me.
0: So, you know, let's just start with um, some of the issues that you take with the Como piece. So first, you say that anchor Eric Johnson, who was the one who produced and put together the piece, started with a foregone conclusion about homelessness in Seattle. Talk about what you mean by that.
1: Well, he called the show Seattle is Dying, and he said that he believes Seattle is dying, rotting from within. So when you hear a reporter say, I believe, that's not something that belongs in a news report. That's an opinion. It belongs in an editorial, not a news show. So he sets out with this belief that Seattle is dying because of homelessness, and then he does everything he can to support it in the show. So you never see him present any information that counters that belief. He doesn't interview city or county leaders. He doesn't talk to the people who are working on homelessness policy or the people at nonprofits who are working every day to try to help get people out of homelessness. Instead, he uses these cherry picked interviews and unconnected facts. And he couldn't objectively pr- prove his claim that Seattle is dying, which, as we know, is ridiculous. Seattle is thriving, we have problems that we need to address. But Seattle is alive and well and working on it. So that show, I would not even call it a documentary. I would call it a one hour video editorial, not a news program.
0: I think that's probably more accurate. Um, You know, you also point out that he seems to in the piece blur the lines between homelessness and issues like addiction, mental illness, crime, Um, We know that there can be a correlation, but what do the data show there?
1: Sure. Well, we know from the most recent point in time count that was reported, which was in January of 2018, that on that night, there were 12,000 people who were experiencing homelessness in King County. And that includes families with children, veterans, seniors, people with disabilities, teens and young adults. And a lot of people are surprised to hear this, but the majority of people who are homeless do not report an issue with drugs or alcohol. It's like 80 percent of people who are homeless in King County who do not report a problem.
0: I think that is something that bears repeating, right? Eighty percent of people report having no addiction problems at all Who of, of the 12,000 people who report as homeless.
1: Of the, yeah, of the people who were surveyed after the count, because during the count itself, they can't wake people up and ask them, right. do you have a, an issue with, with health or drug addiction? But they do a follow-up survey of 1,000 people, and in that process, they ask those, more, those deeper questions.
0: Can you speak to – because I know that this is what your organization focuses on. Can you speak to the number of uh, people who are currently homeless who are families – in King County?
1: Yeah, so it's roughly a third. And again, it's mm. hard to tell with families because a lot of times they're trying not to be found, right? right? They don't want people to know that they're homeless. They're afraid uh, of people finding out. There's stigma attached. They don't want their children to have to um, deal with the ramifications. So in the point-in-time count last year, they, the number they came up with was 2,000. Six hundred and twenty-four people who were in families with children.
0: Mm. That's that number is is just heartbreaking. Um, it is a couple yeah. more points in that you make about the Como piece. Um, one is that, and this is sort of following along the uh, the correlation that Johnson seems to want to make between homelessness and crime. He attempts to establish a connection between repeat offenders. And homelessness, but then a piece by David Croman in Crosscut found that people who are homeless are actually arrested disproportionately.
1: Right. And they're usually arrested for nonviolent crimes. And it could be something like failure to appear in court. And I do want to point out I think that the reporting that David Croman has been doing is outstanding. Yeah, he's uh he did a piece after the Como show came out where he found one of the gentlemen who was being photographed from afar and depicted as one of these wretched souls in the words of Eric Johnson on the street and actually talked to him and said, are you homeless? And it turns out the guy is not even homeless. He's been living in a permanent supportive housing facility for three and a half years and he's been uh, recovering. And that's how you do reporting on this, not just pointing your camera at someone from across the street and making assumptions.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you point out Johnson's use of language like wretched souls. uh, At Another point, he refers to a man as looking like he's possessed by demons and so forth. And it's a safe assumption that language like this can lead people to kind of dehumanize the homeless.
1: Exactly. We actually have a physiological reaction to this kind of language where we no longer are able to see people as human. And one of the pieces I linked to in my crosscut op-ed was something that was written by one of our former grad students who was a school psychology student here at Seattle University, Perry Firth. It's one of the the best things I've ever read. She talks about all the different ways that we see people who are homeless being dehumanized, whether it's the language we use or using them as uh, one of the examples she used at that time was at the South by Southwest Festival there was this um, hotspot, human like wireless hotspot where people who are homeless would walk around and then you'd walk up with your phone and say, okay, stand there so I can get a wireless connection. That kind of thing is just mm. you're not treating someone as a human when you're treating them as a, a wireless hub. Yeah. So when you use language describing people as consumed by demons or living like animals in filth and degradation, then you're not talking about them as human beings.
0: So the conclusion of Seattle is Dying is – I'm just going to editorialize here. Uh, It's pretty jaw-dropping. So uh, the the piece shows McNeil Island in Puget Sound, which has an abandoned prison on it, and it suggests that the city could round up the homeless population, ship them there, and forcibly treat them. Can uh, Can you talk about your reaction to that?
1: I was stunned. I still can't get over it. Uh, like, and he, I think, earnestly thought it was a good idea. And I don't know how. First of all, as we've already said, the, the number of people who need drug treatment are so small within the overall po- homelessness population. Secondly, it's not against the law to be homeless. So why would you arrest people and send them to a prison colony? For treatment that they don't need. Right. Third, he was suggesting using all the resources that we have for homelessness throughout King County on this great idea of his. So that would mean no cities would have any money for homelessness services or housing. No nonprofits would have any money left. It would all be diverted to this program that we don't need. So it just shows that I don't think he did the research that he should have about how homeless funding is spent in King County and who who is homeless in King County.
0: Well, you know, just as sort of a follow-up, recently, uh, a Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals panel ruled, uh, it was on April 3rd last week, that people cannot be arrested for trespassing for sleeping in the streets if there aren't indoor alternatives that have been provided. Um, and in response to this, Seattle Times columnist, Danny Westneat, um, advocated putting up FEMA-style tents at the vacant Terminal 5 uh, at the Port of Seattle, uh, complete with vital services as a It's a safe housing alternative while the city builds more affordable housing. Um, What do you make of that solution?
1: I know people kind of want to go to this. Let's create a big place where all the homeless people can go. But they're ignoring the fact that homeless people also have jobs. Homeless people also have kids in school. And why would you want to, let's say you're living in your car somewhere outside of Seattle with your family close to your child's school, why would you want to come and stay in a giant FEMA tent with thousands of other people where you're cut off from access to your job and your school and your community? So I understand the intent of bringing people inside and that's a good intent, but that is not a practical way to do it. And we also need to to recognize that this is a countywide problem. It's a statewide problem. So we can't just sequester people off in some remote place. We need to disperse the responsibility across the county and the region. And that's why we're working on this new, I'm not personally, but we have people in the county working on a new regional plan to address homelessness.
0: Well, unpack that a little bit because, you know, as somebody who's been a homeless activist for years, I know that you know that the issue is is extraordinarily complicated. It's proven pretty intractable and it's a very big question. But, you know, how should we be looking at slash addressing the problem of homelessness in the Puget Sound region?
1: We need to be doing more of what is working and acknowledging the resources that we need to increase. So, for example, we know that uh, the cost of housing has skyrocketed. There's a direct correlation between increases in rent and homelessness. That was reported by McKinsey. Um, We have a state housing trust fund that is being, uh, the budget for that is being discussed in the legislature right now. There are advocates pushing for adequate funding for that. There are advocates pushing for reforming our eviction laws so you can't be thrown out of your home for being three days late on your rent. And there are solutions like permanent supportive housing, which I think I already mentioned, which is a housing first model where instead of forcing someone who's homeless and has some kind of abuse issue like drugs or alcohol, instead of saying you can't have housing until you clean up, you bring them inside and give them treatment and other services and then guess what, they stay housed. And it's actually less expensive than the way we're doing it now, which is leaving people on the street. They get involved with the criminal justice system. They get taken to Harborview. There are all these public costs that we're spending when we could be spending it on more permanent supportive housing. And we have providers in the region like Downtown Emergency Service Center or DESC and Plymouth who are opening new facilities like this every year. There was just one open yesterday that DESC is operating in North Seattle now. It's 100 Uh, apartments for people who were formerly either in shelters or living at the uh, tiny house village that was low barrier in Lickton Springs or on the street. And now they're going to have these safe and welcoming little homes where they can have access to treatment. And a year from now, if statistics hold up, most of them are still going to be there, living there and thriving and recovering. So that's where we need to be.
0: Well, as I mentioned, you were going to be moderating a panel uh, for the Crosscut Festival called Boomtowns, Affordability and Access for Communities on the Margins. Um, I assume these are going to be some of the things that you'll be talking about. Who's going to be on the panel with you?
1: Well, Crosscut brought together this group of speakers. It's pretty fascinating, the combination. We have three government officials, Dale Constantine, our county executive here in King County. Mm -hmm. We have... Joanne Hardesty, who is a new member of the Portland City Council, and Mayor Libby Schaff of Oakland, who I had the opportunity to hear speak last fall when I was in San Francisco for a conference. So, And then along with them is one of the most wonderful, beautiful humans in the world, yeah. uh, Rex Holbein, who leads up an organization called Facing Homelessness, and the Block Project And his story is fascinating. So he he represents treating people who are homeless with compassion and telling their stories and then connecting them to the help that they need through their stories.
0: Well, it really should be a a great panel. And uh, I'd... For those of us who are going to be going to attending the Crosscut Festival, uh, I highly recommend going and checking that out. Um, and you know, the Como piece—you you touched on this uh, just a moment ago. The Como piece doesn't really address the growing wealth inequality. Uh, that's happening right. in Seattle, um, which very much has exacerbated the homelessness problem. Uh, and we have basically seen that destroy the middle class in cities like San Francisco, New York. Is that something uh, you mentioned that Libby Schaff, the mayor of Oakland, is going to be on the panel? Is this something that you're going to be discussing?
1: Right. It is a phenomenon in West Coast cities that housing prices have been skyrocketing and homelessness has been increasing. And they're all cities with economic growth. So there's inequality going on there, right? So um, jobs are coming in. Housing is not getting built. Mayor Libby Schaff of Oakland will probably be talking about the fact that cities in her region are not addressing their housing needs. That pushes people over to Oakland, which used to be an affordable place to live, right. and now is becoming unaffordable. So how does a region come together and deal with these issues? That's something that Seattle and the Bay Area and Los Angeles all have in common. And I imagine Portland too.
0: Well, I think Seattle and I know that I've heard this anecdotally quite a bit, that Seattle really wants to learn from some of the lessons of San Francisco and the Bay Area so that we don't fall victim in the same way. So obviously the hope is that, that we can, you know, learn from their mistakes so that we don't repeat them, right?
1: Right, and also learn from their successes because they've had success with the public voting on new revenue measures. Like in San Francisco last fall, they voted to um, tax corporations there. In Los Angeles, there were some bond measures that got substantial funding for homelessness there. So we don't have something like that in Seattle. Our attempt, as we know, the head tax did not succeed last year. Yeah. Um, For kind of ugly reasons. That's something else to consider.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so let's shift over and talk about the Project on Family Homelessness. You're the program director for that. So the mission is to increase awareness and understanding of homelessness and to engage with partner organizations to help address the problem. And the primary focus is on storytelling. And this is quite intriguing. So talk about the power of storytelling in this context.
1: Well, Again, going back to the physiological reaction to stories, they light up our brains and open our hearts in the way that data can't alone. So it's something that we've really emphasized on our project, whether it was the first year of our project, having journalists come in and learn more about family homelessness so they could tell the stories of families who were homeless, because at that time, people really didn't even know there was such a thing as homeless families. So we had... Projects like the Seattle Times reporting project on uh, the very first one they did was a mother and her teenage son who were living in their truck and followed them through months of their story. And it really opened a lot of eyes. So since then, we've done a lot of arts events and film screenings and uh, ways to get out in the community and share the story, photo exhibits And then we've also had special projects from time to time, like our partnership with StoryCorps and with The Moth, which are two fantastic storytelling organizations who collect stories from regular people. Uh, StoryCorps came here to collect stories about family homelessness. And from that, uh, three of those stories aired nationally, and nine of them aired here on KUOW. So when people hear stories like that, they pick up the phone, and they say, I want to do something, right? So we had people calling KUOW, and they were referring the calls to me. Like, what, what should we tell them? One woman was so struck by this story of a teenage girl living in a car with her family, she was just like, I have to help this family. I have to know who they are. So stories impel us to action, right? Sometimes it's, I want to help this particular family, or I want to do something that's going to change laws so that the way that we deal with affordable housing and homelessness in our region or in our state changes for the better. And we've had regular people come forward to tell their stories and their stories have helped change policy and that's really exciting.
0: And that's really what it's all about, right? I mean, yeah. yeah. And you know, it, it really it is one thing to to see the homeless as an abstraction, but when you start hearing real stories and connecting faces and names, um it it humanizes. It, it it can help but humanize people.
1: Absolutely. We had a storytelling event with the Seattle Times last summer called Ignite Project Homeless, which is the, the Ignite format is a five-minute story with 20 slides, 15 seconds per slide. So it's challenging for anybody. Uh, but the kinds of stories that we heard that night were just so beautiful and compassionate and eye-opening. We even had a senior executive from the Seattle Times who was there. He and his wife told our moderator, Rainy Cohen, afterwards that um, it was the best 90 minutes they ever spent.
0: Wow. Where can people (laughs) hear some of these stories or see them?
1: Well, we're doing another storytelling event with the Seattle Times this June, and this year we're partnering also with the Seattle Public Library because they're an extraordinary community connector, and they also serve a lot of people who are homeless. So right now we're in the story collection phase, and if you go to the Seattle Times website, uh, Project Homeless, or just Google Times stories about home, should connect you with the page, and you'll see the details about how, what kind of stories we're looking for and how to pitch your story. And then we'll be inviting people to come hear them in June. Another way that people can hear these stories uh, is on our website or on our partner website, We partnered with the organization called FireSteel, which is part of the YWCA of Seattle, King Snohomish, and they house all those StoryCorps stories.
0: Oh, terrific. Okay.
1: That's firesteelwa.org slash StoryCorps.
0: I will make sure that there is a link to that at indivisiblepodcast.org. Thank and I you. will just uh, reiterate it, the project that you are putting on is called Stories About Home. It is upcoming on June 6th at Seattle University. So we'll definitely have some information Correct. about that. And so, you know, I think listeners may be wondering what they can do to help. And there is a very useful poster that your organization has co-created that I will also have a link to. But just give us a couple of action items that are listed on that poster.
1: Sure. And thank you for linking to it. We recognize that people have a wide variety of kinds of help that they want to give. So it could be giving money. It could be donating. It could be calling a lawmaker and sharing your opinion. It could be just voting, registering to vote, um, holding a supply drive for diapers or school supplies, things like that. There's a wide variety. Some people have decided they want to start their own nonprofit to address a certain Issue Like the Third Door Coalition that I'm part of, it's a collaboration between business and academics and nonprofits to work on solving chronic homelessness in King County within five years. There's another organization that just started last year uh, that wants to involve millennials, and they, just within a few months of existence, held a fun run last weekend where they had 500 people show up at Seward Park to do a run about ending homelessness. That's so, great. It's just there's so much room, and we need all of it. We need everybody to take part.
0: Well, there's a lot that people can do. Uh, obviously, the, the problem is ongoing, and it needs attention, and uh, there are ways to get involved at pretty much every level. So Catherine Heinrichsen is project director for Seattle University's Project on Family Homelessness. I will have a link to everything that we talked about here on the show at IndivisiblePodcast.org. But Katherine Heinrichson, thank you so much for the work that you're doing, and thank you so much for joining us.
1: You're welcome. Thank you for your work, too.
0: On Monday, indivisible members, along with state education advocates, went to Olympia to testify before the Senate Ways and Means Committee about the need for a fairer tax code to help fund education in the state. Joining me is one of those indivisible members, our friend Kathleen Hyman. Hi, Kathleen.
2: Hi, Stephen.
0: So we know that our state has the most regressive tax structure in the nation, and we also famously do not have an income tax. So that means that we will have to find other ways to fund vital services like education. Uh, Currently, there is a bill, Senate Bill 5961, which is chiefly a capital gains tax, and that's what you were there to push for. First, just uh, as a, a primer, just explain roughly how a capital gains tax works.
2: Well, a capital gains tax is a tax on the profit you uh, realize or that you achieve when you sell an asset like a stock or a bond. And so if I sell, you know, uh, various shares of Amazon or Microsoft stocks um, and I achieve a million dollars in profit. Um, which good for you, I by would, the way. If you know, which would be great. Just imagine, <laughs> yeah, with a well timed sale, I make that much money, and this bill says, "Great, Kathleen, but we're going to tax you a small amount on a portion of that sale, on a portion of that profit."
0: Right. Okay. And this would uh, ostensibly under SB 5961, that would create some funds that would be available for things like education, as we mentioned. Uh, So tell us a little bit about the day. Tell us about your testimony in Olympia. What was that like?
2: Well, it was really exciting. Several of us from the 5th Legislative District and one of our uh, A friend from the 41st Legislative District drove down together and carpooled. Um, We arrived and signed in, and we met up with uh, friends from the Washington's Paramount Duty Group, which has been a champion for uh, public education for several years now. And we waited for our names to be called. Um, There were a lot of bills on the docket. I think 10 or 12 bills that the Senate Ways and Music Committee was hearing. And our bill was the eighth in line. So after the, you know, we were called up in groups of three to sit down and testify. And we had all of 60 seconds to make the point we wanted to make. That's a long drive for 60 seconds. (laughs) Yes, it was. And it was interesting because, um, you know, try to distill down, you know, issues that you feel passionate about. And that are complex to sixty seconds, literally, with that red light glaring. If you hit that sixty seconds, it's it's tricky. Um, there are many many people who spoke um, overwhelmingly in favor.
0: Well, give us an idea of what you said.
2: What I said was I talked about the income uh, inequality uh, in our state and the great challenges that so many people are facing. And I specifically talked about how I live quite close to Tent City 4, which is an encampment of about 100 homeless men and women who are supposed to leave and relocate every three or four months, um, so they don't kind of overstay their, their welcome. They've been unable to move and have been there for over a year because no one will accept them. So you have, through Snellageddon that we went through recently, through all of this rain and dismal weather, these people living in tents at the base of a cold mountain. And it's a daily reminder that our systems are failing us. And this capital gains tax and the whole tax package that the Senate was looking at in these various bills that were bundled together in tax reform format are our chance to do something about that.
0: Yeah. Well, I understand that you ran into fifth LD Senator Mark Mullet, who is uh, my senator for that matter. And he said that he is leaning against.
2: Uh, tell us about that exchange. Yes. He uh, wanted to talk to us about some concerns that were expressed about an amendment he had made to another capital gains bill where he uh, proposed to cut and then changed it and proposed to freeze a portion of teachers earnings. That was quite controversial, yeah. Very controversial, very controversial. And he tried to explain himself in the hallway. Um, A lot of misinformation or misunderstandings on his part about how the teacher's salary rules work. Um, But when it got down to capital gains, he just really was struggling with the very concept and really – I don't recall that he outnotes that he was against it or would vote against it, but he really made it clear that he, I did not foresee him voting for it. Yeah. So he was kind of, he didn't come down and give us a clear answer where he was at, but his struggle was real. We could see it. He was not there.
0: Well, we do know that there is a meme going around the state GOP asserting that a capital gains taxes tantamount to an income tax. So we know that there are afraid of it. And they may be putting uh, pressure on people like Mark Mullett, uh, who is for you know, all intents and purposes in a purple legislative district. Uh, so the House has passed a capital gains bill. Um, and so in the Senate, 5961 needs to clear the Ways and Means Committee before coming to a floor vote. Um, Governor Inslee has said that he very much wants to sign a capital gains tax this year if it can get to his desk. How do you handicap the chances of all of this?
2: You know, we, we're trying to do a mental count of the Senate Ways and Means Committee members who would vote for it. And there are a lot of votes for this bill and very passionate voices and votes for this bill. Um, if it clears the committee and goes to the Senate, you know, we have a, a Democratic majority in the Senate. And even if we lost the vote of Senator Mullet and Senator Colombo, I think we've got good chances of it passing. Um, And then it just needs to be reconciled with the House, like you mentioned. Um, Senator Mullet is a big blocker of this, but I don't think that he alone has the ability to hold this thing up, hopefully.
0: Well, I really appreciate you going down to Olympia on behalf of all of us and going down and witnessing how the sausage is made, as the expression goes. Uh, So, Kathleen Hyman, thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Stefan. It was a pleasure talking to you today. (laughs) And we will
0: end this week as we usually do with our friend Stephen Wilhelm. He is research team leader for Indivisible Washington's 8th, and we will get our weekly calls to action from him. Hello, Stephen. Hey, Stephen. How's it going? It is going swell, I think, is a word that I haven't (laughs) used in a while, but I'm just going to go there. Um, All right. So let's start with an action directed at our legislature. And this has to do with presidential and vice presidential candidates being required to release their tax returns in order to qualify for the ballot here in Washington. This uh, actually turns out to be quite timely considering what's happening with uh, the push by Congress to get a hold of Trump's tax returns. So here in the state, this is SB 5078. This is passed out of the Senate. Uh, Tell us where this bill is now.
3: This bill right now is still with the House Rules Committee, which is to me a little bit surprising. I I thought this one was a no-brainer and and should take all of about 3 seconds right. to to pass but for some reason um it hasn't gone nearly as smoothly as as i foolishly expected so as i say it's with the house rules committee right now and what needs to happen is the rules committee needs to agree to um you know put it on the on the uh House floor for a debate and for a vote. So the action for this week uh, would be to call your representative who is on that rules committee and ask them to um, move this bill to second reading so it can be debated and then and then voted uh, for on the on the House floor. Now, just real quickly, um, your listeners probably know that this bill establishes requirements for presidential and vice presidential candidates to release five years of uh, federal income tax returns in order to be listed on the Washington state ballot. I think there's something like 12 states or more, um, but it, it, 12 is a number I've heard that, that are, are passing, have passed, or planning to pass bills like this. So I think it's really important for a number of states to, to pass bills like this. And again, should be a slam dunk for, for a progressive state and hasn't passed yet.
2: Yeah.
0: All right. Well, so then a push is required. And as always, you can go to ledge.wa.gov to find out if your representative sits on the House Rules Committee. All right. So the next bill is related to gun safety. This is SHB 1225. It has passed out of the House. It is under consideration by the Senate Rules Committee. Uh, Tell us about this bill.
3: Yeah this bill is really uh, rather comprehensive so what this is is this is law enforcement response to domestic violence incidents to enhance the safety of victims victims families and officers and and it it does a couple of things but basically um what it does is it establishes requirements for law enforcement officers when they're responding to domestic violence calls um you know it it uh includes standards for them to remove firearms and ammunitions. Yeah. ammunition when there's a, a, a probable cause to believe that a crime was committed, and it also gives protocols for them to ask the victim um, yeah. regarding the abuser's access and past use of firearms. Um, and probably most important, um, it includes a provision that um, if the officers do have probable cause to remove ammunition and weapons from a, a potential a domestic abuser, um, that they won't give that um, a firearm back until at least five business days have elapsed so that they can, you know, do diligence and, and make sure that there isn't a probability of, of uh, further violence or, or additional crimes uh, to be committed. So it, it really um, provides enhanced safety for the victims and for the first responders themselves. Um, to, to not have the, the situation escalate and, and more violence to occur.
0: Yeah. Well, this is one of those bills that falls neatly under the common sense gun law category. So we are <laughs> looking to push this out of committee and onto the Senate floor for a vote. Okay. And then so finally, there is a call to urge Governor Jay Inslee to push for some climate change legislation. And this seems like an ask that obviously is right in his wheelhouse. Could You know, he's running for president as the climate candidate. Uh, they're going to need to get... Out of committee by April 9th, these bills are, uh, which is before our air date. But I think people will be interested to hear what the bills are. And also, uh, because there have been some Democratic defections around environmental legislation, which you and I have pre- previously talked about, uh, these bills are ultimately going to need a push once they're on the floor. Uh, so we have talked about these two bills before, but what are the two bills that are still in consideration?
3: Um, the two bills that are still in consideration are, um, House Bill 1112, and I'll say a little bit more in a minute, but just, um, Mm -hmm. so the, the first bill is reducing greenhouse gas emissions from, (laughs) are you ready for this, from hydrofluorocarbons. Nicely Um, done. And that, that one.
0: It's early, it's early in the (laughs) day for a tongue twister like that. Well done.
3: Thank you so much. That that bill's a little bit more straightforward. We'll come back to it. Um, Less comprehensive. And the the kind of the big kahuna, as it were, the bigger bill, the more important bill, is uh, Senate Bill 5116, which is um, supporting Washington's clean energy economy and transitioning to a clean, affordable, and reliable uh, energy future. And and I'll just quickly mention that there was a third bill that was in the mix. Um, It was House Bill 1110, which is a low carbon fuel standard and unfortunately um that bill had until the 9th of april to get out of the house transportation committee and at least as as i can tell as we sit here this morning after the 9th of, of april it looks like that one didn't get out of committee so that one well, that, that, I think that was
0: one of the ones that actually fell victim to some of the Democratic defections that we talked about for some of the same exactly. reasons that uh, 1631, yep. initiative 1631, uh, also failed to pass. I think that was pressure from the fossil fuel lobby. But anyway, that is to be expected. So uh, tell us a little bit more about 5116.
3: Uh, yeah, 5116 um, is the pretty comprehensive bill. It, it would set the state on a, on a path to be greenhouse gas neutral. Uh, By 2030. So as a major first step, all electric companies in the state would need to um, stop using coal-fired energy, Um, and and then I think the uh, requirements are to be carbon neutral um, by I think it's 2030, and then to be carbon free. Um, by you, you know using all um, non emitting and, and renewable energy sources by two thousand and forty five so a really comprehensive bill that would get us away from from emitting greenhouse gases is really important, and you would think something that would be right in Jay Inslee's wheelhouse if he sure. wants to be the um, the only presidential candidate who's running on, a, on the environmental uh, platform, as it were. So this should be both important to progressive Democrats and certainly important to the governor. And so, you know, two things people can do if those issues are important to them. Certainly call your... Um, I think this one, let me double check, but I'm pretty sure this one is still in... Uh, the Rules Committee, uh, exactly. So, so this one, you want to call your Senate, uh sorry, your House uh, Rules Committee member, and ask them to get this out of the Rules Committee and onto okay. the House floor for a vote. And then, um, because that one hasn't gone to gone to the floor yet, call the governor as well. This should be this should be near and dear to his heart, and ask him to um, uh, check in with his um, legislature and and see whatever he can do to move this forward for for ultimately a vote.
0: Yeah. Yeah, this is uh, for those of us uh, looking for extra credit and I think um that probably is most everybody who's listening to this show because I think that people see the passage of meaningful climate legislation not only is an imperative right now, but I think it was something that we all had very high hopes for, uh, given the margins that we have in both chambers and the fact that we have a climate change governor like Jay Inslee. So given that these are basically the last two major pieces of climate legislation, I think we do need to push very hard on these because we don't know if we're going to have Democratic majorities with these margins in the legislature in the future. And actually, before we go, um, we were going to discuss Eleven, twelve. That is reducing uh, gas emissions from hydrofluorocarbons. Hey, I did it too. Uh, so, uh, tell us a little bit more about that uh, that bill.
3: Right, this is one that uh, should be a little bit easier. It's a little less controversial, but but should be very important. So, certainly, your listeners who are um, uh, you know wanting to defend the environment should call their um, state uh, senators. And um ask them to uh, vote for this one when it comes to the floor. It is out of the rules committee, so again- redu- regulates and reduces hydrofluorocarbons. maybe listeners recall way back when you know there is there were um you know air conditioning gases um, mm-hmm. and and aerosols would really create some significant significant damage to um, the ozone layer. These are similar types, they've been replaced, those old gases have been replaced, but these hydrofluorocarbons still do quite a bit of damage. These are air conditioning and, and refrigerant, refrigerant gases, um, and they're known to have uh, significant impacts uh, to uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, so we want to regulate those uh, materials. So, call your state senator and ask them to vote for this one when it comes up. But needs to pass before the seventeenth of April.
0: Very good. Okay, so just to recap, fifty one sixteen and eleven twelve are the two bills. But if you missed anything during this segment, of course, we will have uh, all the information for you at indivisiblepodcast dot org. Stephen, as always, thank you so much.
3: My pleasure, Stephen. Talk to you soon.
0: And that'll do it for this week's show. There was a lot of information this week, but uh, rest assured that you can find everything at indivisiblepodcast.org. And if you have not subscribed yet, please do. If you would like to get in touch, the email for the show, as always, is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. And the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Thank you again to my guests, Katherine Heinrichson and Kathleen Hyman. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.